So today is our our third session about renunciation in lay life. And today we'll be looking at maybe the deepest kind of renunciation, so our idea of of self or ego or conceit. Uh, and we'll also take a look, step back a little bit and take a look at the path to liberation that's laid out through the practice <coughs> of uh, letting go or renunciation, which is pretty much what the path is about. It's actually the, the aim is to let go in some wise way. So we talked last time about um, mental habit patterns that we get caught in, uh, that we've probably all observed in ourselves in some way. Maybe you've had a chance to observe and feel some of them this week. So I would assert that, and you don't need to believe this, but check it out, is that this sense of self that we have, or the idea of who we are, is essentially um, a collection of these patterns. You know, that's what it amounts to in the end. And that doesn't make it good or bad, um, but that there isn't anything more fundamental there than uh, a collection of these. And we have a bunch of them that we stitch together and assemble. There isn't just one version of me. <clears throat> so that means that what we're talking about this week is kind of a special case of what we talked about last week. Uh, but the, the Buddha realized, I think, that this is what's going on and that this particular kind of pattern, the pattern about something about me, is particularly related to suffering. You know, it's really one of the biggies. And so he singled it out as kind of a special kind of practice. Um, but it's really not fundamentally different than what we talked about last week. So I thought I'd actually start with a, a question for all of you, uh, which is, you know, if you've thought about this or, or observed, more particularly observed, that you have some of these mental patterns, um, what does it feel like to be experiencing a certain pattern, you know, when you realize you're just playing something out, that is just something that your mind does. What, is that, what does that feel like for you to, to be in that? Does anyone have any? There's a lot of different answers. Could you say a little more about what you mean as yeah. a pattern? Like, for example, I gave that example about when I was hiking and with my friend and we came to a place in the trail where he thought we had been before and I I was sure that we hadn't been there before, and so there was a little mental experience around that. So, I, and I realized I was in this pattern, and so um, I could feel something in myself of how I was bringing my energy forward to to talk. And I was realizing, oh, this is my my way of doing this. And so I, I had some certain feelings associated in my body and my mind with that. I'm curious if anyone has observed anything. Yeah. I think any time I'm uh, criticized, I can see the self-defending and yeah. you know, the clinging to who I think I am. Certainly. Yeah, and what does that feel like in yeah, terms well, of how do you recognize that that's happening? Um, criticism in particular is, is hard yeah. and um, you know, there's this kind of low-level panic. Okay, so an agitation feeling. Yeah. 
feeling of unsteadiness or movement. Yeah, because our center of who we think we are is being threatened, essentially. Uh, doesn't mean it's true or not, but that's, there's that feeling. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's helpful. That's a great example. It's a sort of an unsteadiness or a, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Thinking about criticism, feel like my face gets flushed and I stop breathing. Uh huh. Yeah. I hold my breath. Yeah. And while I'm holding my breath, my brain is actively thinking of the thing that's going to secure my ego. So, like, what are the defenses? <laughs> right. What's How can I recover from that's this? It's going to undermine the criticism. So yeah. I don't have to feel this. This feeling. Yeah. Great. These are both great examples, and you guys have chosen ones related to the self, which is nice. Uh, those are the easy ones, actually, because they have a lot of charge to them. So, um, I think what I'll draw out of that is a sense that um, when when we're criticized, or when, more generally, when we're in a pattern, the mind kind of locks into a particular mode. Like, while you're in that feeling of being defensive, um, you may notice that you're not, for example, very creative <laughs> or not very um, expansive, in a sense, in the mind. And so, at least for me, and I'll just you know, check it out for yourself also, patterns are generally restrictive. You know, they're ways of narrowing the world to a set uh, response. And it might be a response of, gotta secure this, or a response of, this isn't stable, there's a feeling of nervousness or agitation, but there isn't generally a feeling of ease, openness, spaciousness. And so there's a, um, we can identify in the body usually feelings that are very specific, flush in the face or a tightness in the belly, something like that. These are um, examples of how we might experience, how we might actually practice some of these things that we've been talking about. And it's great that you're starting, some of you are starting to feel these. I'm sure many of us would have examples like that. And the reason that I'm, I'm kind of pushing on this point is that um, patterns are essentially, there's, a, there's a, uh, this feeling of binding is very real. This is what's meant by a fetter. Fetter is not a common word that we have in the English language. I mean, it's, well, some people don't, uh, <coughs> we don't use it very often, so some people aren't even quite sure what it's me- it means. But a fetter is like something that binds us. It's a form of bondage. And um, the mind that's fettered literally feels like that. It feels like it's in a rut or a track or it's locked into something. It's narrowed. It's restricted. So this technical term fetter, and there are ten fetters technically defined in our tradition that... Uh, keep us from freedom, it's nothing more abstract than that. It's not abstract at all. I mean, it's literally a feeling of being bound. And once you tune into that, that's what it means to practice the Four Noble Truths. You're practicing with something that is binding you, and there's a, there can be a release of it when we see it, <coughs> or when we see through it. And this is, um, yeah, this is meant to be very pragmatic and practical. So I want to... Uh, talk a little bit about learning to let go of fetters as the path of practice. That's what we're doing. So that the mind more often feels that freeness, that 
suppleness, that responsivity that comes when it's not bound, that is, when it's not defending itself, reacting, or being aggressive, or being greedy, and other modes that we have of clinging. So the path of non-clinging has to do with how we, actually how we relate to this fetter. So the mind is fettered. If you're not an arhant or a Buddha, your mind is fettered. That's maybe why some of us are here. And so um, there's a question then of how we relate to this. It's not a matter of, well, I'm just going to decide not to be fettered anymore. That would be great, but we have them. And so then there's the question of how do we relate to them when they arise. And there's a sutta that talks about uh, some very, has some nice visceral kind of analogies for this. Um, it, it's called actually the simile of the quail. And uh, that is, relates to a, an image that's given of a quail that is bound by a rotting vine. So the, I guess the idea is that a rotting vine is not a very substantial kind of bond. But a quail is supposed to be something that's not a very substantial and strong kind of being. And so the, the sutta says that a, a quail can actually be bound by a rotting vine. It's a strong bond for a quail. And then the contrast is that an elephant uh, is not even bound by a strong leather cord. You know, the elephant can break out even of a leather cord. So it's a big, those are two extremes. So what, what matters is... Um, the character of the fetter matters relative to the strength of the being that's bound. And so some of what we do is we make ourselves more into elephants than quails, something like that. So there's that. There's this idea of, you know, can we be bound even by a rotting vine? Are we so weak that that's enough for us? Or are we so strong that even a, a leather cord we could rip our way out of? Um, so then the sutta goes on to give an analogy of a poor man and a rich man um, to make it a little bit more about renunciation. And it says, um, a poor, penniless, and destitute man, um, consider a poor, penniless, and destitute man who had one dilapidated hovel open to the crows, not the best kind, and one dilapidated wicker bedstead bedstead, not the best kind, and some grain and pumpkin seeds in a pot, not the best kind, and one wife, not the best kind. <laughs> so you have to have a little bit of um, generosity for the language, but it's meant to cover the areas of our life, you know, our food, our house, our relationships. And so it's said, though, that imagine that this poor man um, sees a renunciate, sees a monk walking by or a nun, and understands intuitively that that is a better life, you know, to be living that way, and yet finds that he can't even give up these poor things that he has uh, in order to pursue the renunciate life. And then it contrasts that with a very wealthy man who enjoys the best of everything, has good relationships, has a good home, treasures, and people in his life, but he too sees a renunciate, thinks that would actually be better, and is able to give all of that up. Um, so what is the difference? You know, so this is pointing toward, it's not exactly what it is, the stuff in your life that's 
you know, it's not so much that if, you know, if I had worse things, it would be easier to give them up, or if I had better things, then I'd be satisfied enough, and then I could give them up. It's not about the things, it's about the degree of caughtness to whatever it is that we have, whether it's poor quality or high quality. And this isn't literally talking about how we all need to go and become renunciates. It's, I think we can make the abstraction that this is about letting go of these things that we have, you know, letting go of our attachment to them, whether they are, you know, wonderful and supportive or not. And we might even be bound to things that are not supportive to us. Of course we've seen this in our own mind. If we're bound to our suffering in some way, but we still can't give it up, that's like the poor man. You know, we're bound to our unhappiness in some way. We're so sure that we're an unhappy person that we can't give that up. Wow, <laughs> you know, that's like not being able to give up a, a terrible housing situation. So the degree of caughtness, it's not the object, it's the bond. And so we can practice in daily life with the question, what is it that makes a bond effective? You know, why are certain bonds effective for me? Like, why is a, you know, why are some bonds as strong as a rotting vine for a quail? Um, so, you know, we can practice with, of course, the physical things in our life, but when we start practicing with the mental patterns, this becomes all the more evident when we see that we're bound to things that are actually, you know, harming us, that are not even physical. It's interesting. Okay, so, Maybe I'll give this, I'll return to the example I gave of the hiking trail where I was bound to being right about, you know, whether or not we'd been at a certain intersection before. And I, I looked at that a little bit more, and it was clear that this had to do with myself. You know, there was a, a sense there of, because um, I like to be competent, <laughs> so many of us do. I have some attachment to um, looking like I know what I'm doing probably why I sit in the front of the room here. Um, you all think I know what I'm doing. But, um, so, you know, it's sort of an, uh, to be seen as competent, as having a good memory of kind of being together and knowing where I am and where I'm going, something like that, which I certainly don't always feel, but there's, a, there's an attachment to wanting to feel that way because it's kind of valued, I guess, in our society. And so there's a self there, you know, and... I don't want to make this into too big of a thing, this thing on the hiking trail. It wasn't a huge instance of suffering for me, but generally when we're, we're caught up in an image of ourselves or something that we're needing to defend, as was mentioned earlier, there's more suffering. That's a stronger bond, generally, um, than something where it's we, we like it or we don't like it, but it's not so tied in with who we think we are and who we think we need to be seen as. So you can check out for yourself, but you know, I think the Buddha knew this, is that the stuff related to me is a stronger bond. So that becomes interesting and an important, it's a special kind of practice to work with those kinds of bonds. So the Buddha says, near the end of his life, he said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. It's a strong statement. And so how do we practice with something like that? Well, we can watch, we can examine the movements in our mind that are related to getting and having, which are about mine, 
and about becoming, which is about me, about who I am and what I look like. So the the sutta with the quail goes on to talk about four ways that we can relate to a bond. That we, when we notice that there's one of these bonds, whether it's a rotting bind or a thick leather cord, um, we can notice how we relate to them. How do how does the mind deal with the fact that it's feeling a fetter? And so there's four kind of four levels. And the first is that uh, we can tolerate the fetter. <laughs> you know, we can essentially kind of go along with it, indulge in it. And um, the conclusion is this person is fettered. So we've but we've all seen ourselves do that. That's like a, that when I talked about that progression last time of stages that we go through in working with the pattern, that's the one where we just kind of, it just unfolds. <laughs> it's like we're just doing it. And so we're fettered. Um, the second is that we see the fetter and we don't tolerate it, but we have aversion to it and we reject it or we deny it or we avoid it in some way. And so this is a little bit like I talked about that Vibhava Tanha where we kind of get into... I don't want to have this, I, you know, I don't want to have this pattern, it's a bad thing, I wish I didn't have it. But this doesn't actually do anything to get rid of it. The conclusion here also is this person is fettered. So if a fetter arises and we say, and we, we don't want it, we're, we're just as fettered. You know, maybe we don't want it and we wish we could get rid of it. Maybe that's a little bit of a step toward someday we'll be able to let go. But the aversion is, it's, aversion's another fetter. So, We've, um, we're not helping ourselves particularly by having a pattern arise and saying, oh, that's bad. So we're stuck with what the Four Noble Tasks of the Four Noble Truths actually are, which are to turn toward our suffering, to notice the cause of it, to find ways to let go of it. That's what the practice of the Four Noble Truths says. So we can't, can't just ignore it and we can't push it away. We have to turn toward it. So the third level of relating to fetters is that we have mindfulness. We're aware of it. We see it clearly. We uh, be with it in the way that we're told. You know, that we've been practicing. We're kind to it. We see it. We don't react. We, um, you know, we allow it to have its life. And eventually, uh, whatever it is that arose, we can let, let go of. You know, things don't arise forever. So we feel angry, but we refrain from speaking and eventually it passes or the situation moves on and this is good you know this is um so this is an advance over over just acting it out and so the conclusion from the sutta is this person is also fettered but is practicing so it's a developmental stage on the path to have mindfulness mindfulness itself is not literally freedom we're still fettered but it is a way of not deepening the fetter. We're no longer digging that rut farther. And by seeing it, we do slightly flatten out the territory around it, so the rut gets a little bit steep. But it's still there. But mindfulness is part of the path, so we are doing that. Luckily, there's a fourth level, which is that um, the way it says it in the sutta is one divests oneself of attachment. So this is and this person is unfettered. So what does it mean to divest oneself of attachment? It's a whole different level of development. And what this means is that um, wisdom meets experience in the moment, and it 
um, produces immediate liberation from clinging. So the clinging doesn't actually happen. There's a meeting of experience with wisdom, and um, it just doesn't arise. So that's the moment where we are in a situation, we pass through it, and then we look back and say, oh, I didn't even get angry there. Whoa! (laughs) You know, it's like it wasn't there. The mindfulness, uh, the wisdom met experience so quickly that there was no chance for um, the fetter to bind us in any way. The mind might at that point still have what's called an underlying tendency to um, be fettered, but if wisdom is strong enough, it's like being an elephant and not being bound even by a leather cord, so you can just keep walking. Um, And then eventually, you know, there won't be any cords at all. But uh, this level of practicing with experience, you may have experienced it um, already, say on retreat. People can have deep experiences where they're pretty concentrated, pretty pretty much samadhi is there, and something will arise and it doesn't stick. That's what it feels like. It's called Teflon mind or like the lotus where the water rolls off of it. It's qualitatively different from having something arise and knowing that you're mindful of it and, you know, being relatively, you know, not, not having too much stickiness with it and then it falls away. This is a different level where it arises and it kind of just passes through. There's a sense of it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have anywhere to land. So it's a qualitatively different experience and this sutta nicely uh, differentiates those. Adyashanti says, you think you resist things because they are there, but actually they are there because you resist them. (laughs) This is actually very profound. And, um, yeah, I see a hand there. Yeah, um, <coughs> since uh, you've been talking about this uh, the last three weeks, I've uh, gone back to thinking about this um, comic strip that I have, uh, you know, attached to the refrigerator. And so, and so I wanted to throw this out there and see what, you know, when your response is, I, maybe it has something to do with bettering. I, I hadn't, I, I you know, hadn't thought of that concept before just now. Okay. Anyway, um, it's a comic strip that's uh, by R. Crumb, who uh, did uh, stuff for about fifty, you know, a long time ago in the seventies, and it's called uh, Mr. Natural Does the Dishes. Some of you might remember it. <laughs> and so anyway, the first panel is this, um, this sort of ageless fellow with a white beard down to his waist, you know, dressed in a sack or something. He's looking at the kitchen and it's all in disarray. The dishes are just, you know, all piled up in the sink. And then, the, you know, then the caption is, you know, right grumble and uh, you know, bitch and moan and right and grumble and then as it goes past to other uh, panels he finally you know starts to wash the dishes and then he's still you know griping and grumbling and then it sort of shifts to the dishes are getting clean and then I guess 
there's like a musical note, like he's maybe singing a song or something like that. And then the last panel, everything is done. And he's standing back and looking at it and says, another job well done. And I, I, it just struck me, it seemed like, when you're talking about letting go, it was like, he was resisting this. Maybe he was fettered by this, mm. you know, the, the, the sight of the presence of these, you know, dirty dishes, and he didn't. And he wanted to resist, but he finally gave up the resistance, and then his takeaway was that he uh, was pleased. Well, I think what I appreciate about that is that it emphasizes how he did it. You know, the job well done is that he did the job well, meaning that he, it was, it was, it was the approach and not the job itself or the fact that the dishes were dirty or that he made dirty dishes or whatever. So there, there is something in our practice about how we do it being important and maybe just doing it dish by dish, um, which may not be very exciting, but which does eventually produce the result. Um, and actually, I think this points, if you'll permit me to say a few things first, I can get back to this idea of cleaning, um, because I th it does relate to something I wanted to get to in a moment, is that there are different uh, things that we're doing in our practice. One of them relates to cleaning, and but that's not actually the deepest thing that we can be doing. Um, but I like the word natural in there also. I think that helps. So maybe I'll put a little bracket around it with just that first response, and you can see if um, you feel complete with what I say later. Is that okay? Okay. So I think this actually relates very well to the uh, notion that it can be very humbling to find, as we do this practice, that we create the vast majority of our own suffering, like the fellow with the dishes. It wasn't really the dishes that were the problem. Um, in fact, maybe a sink full of dirty dishes is a rotting vine to a quail, but is a, you know, nothing to an elephant, right? Just do the dishes, what's the problem? And so we're, we do, in a way, create our own suffering. And as we start to look at this particular pattern that's related to our identity, particular types of mental patterns that have to do with me, uh, it's, it's very humbling to see that we're creating a lot of that. I mean, we, we create the self. Um, a friend of mine who was doing some of this work described it as um, she, she would feel like there was a big bonfire burning and she was, you know, putting it out with this hose and kind of, you know, working with this um, pattern that was uh, potentially destructive and she would be feeling good like you know I'm really fighting this fire effectively and then she'd kind of look over her shoulder and she would see that behind her own back she's throwing logs on the fire <laughs> does it ever feel like that right and so it's like if you look like where where is this coming from it's like oh I feel really good about fighting this fire, but I'm creating the fire. <laughs> Wait a minute, <laughs> you know, could be more efficient about that. So this is something that we start to see through doing this kind of practice, and it's very humbling. <laughs> um, so shifting to the next 
area, um, it's important to understand that as the path goes along, we need to let go eventually, even of the wholesome. And that doesn't mean that we stop doing wholesome things, but wholesomeness can be identified with. And so part of our identity, especially as we get to be, you know, we do more and more practice and we become genuinely helpful, compassionate, loving, wonderful people, like you meet uh, on the path, um, that can become, that itself can become an identity. And it's one more thing that has to be let go of, not by letting, not doing those qualities, but simply by allowing them to be natural and not identifying with them. This is why there are four kinds of karma identified and the, the two that are distinct are interesting. So there's dark karma, karma that's not going, karma that's going towards suffering. Bright karma, karma that's going away from suffering. Karma that's both dark and bright, which many of us know about, the kind of mixed motives that we operate with. And then there's karma that's neither bright nor dark and leads to the end of suffering. Why is that distinct from bright karma? Because they're not the same. Um, we should do as much bright karma as we can. Uh, this is helpful because the mind, when it's in a bright state, is much a better able to see what's causing suffering and how to let go of it. Plus it just is about non-harming in the world, so it helps our path. But uh, karma that's neither dark nor bright, that would be things like mindfulness, like wisdom, like things that are about letting go. Um, and those ones are the ones that lead, it says, it says karma that leads to the end of karma. I should be clear about that. So there's another, also a quote from a sutta. Here, a practitioner is virtuous, but she does not identify with her virtue. And she understands as it actually is, that deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom where these wholesome habits cease without remainder. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, we don't want our wholesome habits to cease in the sense of we don't do them, but we want the, the habit part. Habits is another word for pattern or uh, the fetter the that comes in, the, the way that we get stuck in a rut. That part ceases, so that the wholesome behavior is just there, but it's free. It's not something where we think, I'm a generous person, I'm a wonderful loving person, I'm a brilliant teacher, you know, whatever it is, um, even those identifications are eventually restrictive. So in the end, we renounce even the wholesome. <laughs> um, this is called atamayata, which literally means not made of that, but it means something like we don't use anything to create more and especially to create ourself. So we don't even use the stuff of goodness to create a good self. We don't need that anymore. We may need it along the path, um, but at some point we realize that even that is a little bit too heavy, a little bit too burdensome. So the medium, I, the, the image I like to use for this is that of a, a medium. So this is a part about cleaning. Um, a medium that has various folds and wrinkles in it, like say a, a a crumpled up piece of paper, like you know, something like, like this, or a cloth that's rumpled. So there's um, a couple things going on there. There's the cloth itself, or the paper itself, and that could be cleaned. You know, it could, like this piece of paper has ink on it, but what if it were perfectly pristine and pure, or this cloth were totally white, totally um, 
beautifully clean with no dirt or oil or stain on it. That's what we do with wholesome karma, is we make our mind pristine, um, beautiful. Uh, but what about the shape of this? That is the work of the fetters. So that is, there are internal forces in this that prevent it from being flat that I've created by pushing on it. So it has fetters if it's bound in some way into a form that's not flat. So we can clean this, but that doesn't actually necessarily flatten this. And so maybe it helps. Maybe there's, now I'm stretching beyond my physical analogy, but maybe like white paper is less tightly bound than dirty paper, something like that. But in the end, um, what we're doing with insight practice is cutting the fetters and springing this open piece by piece until the mind is perfectly flat in addition to being whatever level of cleanliness it is, probably pretty clean at that point. So it's a little bit different kinds of practice, right? So, um, practice cuts these internal cords that are binding the mind, and that's what makes the mind feel like it's got that, you know, that fettered feeling. And what that does is, you know, that's caused by ignorance, ultimately, and so it's a distortion. It's literally a distortion. That's why I use this image of something not being totally flat, is that the mind gets bound, and then it's like having a curved piece of glass that you're looking through, you have literally a distortion in what you're seeing. So imagine a mind that's free as a mind that is perfectly smooth and offers no impedance and no distortion to experience. That would be a free, unfettered mind. So it could be that the unfettered medium essentially becomes transparent or disappears along with you. <laughs> yeah, so there, our self is a little bend in the, in the medium, shall we say. And about this idea of you know, letting go even of the wholesome, Joseph Goldstein in his classic brilliance says, it does not matter to what you do not cling. It does not matter to what you do not cling. It's the non-clinging that matters. And so, you know, of course, please practice wholesome karma. And, you know, maybe, like, like I said, clean media are easier to untangle, something like that, if you can stretch it, the analogy that way. Um, but in the end, we, it's not quite enough, I guess, to do good karma. We also need to have intelligence, wisdom, some insight into experience. That's that final piece that makes the difference. That's why the path is about sila, samadhi, and panya, not just sila. So freedom, the larger result of all this letting go, springing open, becoming transparent and undistorted, is that we have a complete absence of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. And so these have been renounced, essentially. And so it then becomes a question, well, when these have been renounced, what is there? You know, what's left? And um, in the Theravada tradition, this is rarely stated explicitly. There isn't a big deal made out of what freedom is, exactly. Um, why? 
so we don't make it into a thing. <laughs> so we don't reify it in some way. There are some, you can, you can look for it because everyone wants to know, right? Why am I doing this? I would like to know where it goes. So there are words used. Um, some, some that are, I can pull out are peace, supreme bliss, and supreme security from bondage. There's that bondage again. Um, so those are pretty good uh, things that we're aiming for. But I like to think that the larger result is open. You know, as long as there's no greed, hatred, or delusion, there could be anything else. <laughs> there could be something else, and, and there are. You know, liberated people variously display qualities that are anything but greed, hatred, and delusion. That includes wisdom, compassion, love, patience, peace, all kinds of things. Um, any of that could be there or nothing. Nothing, you know, different depends on the moment. So it's a liberated person is not easily described. Uh, it is said of such a person that all pathways of speech have been uprooted. So we may try to describe them, but that's us. That's what we're seeing. As a fettered being, we will project something onto them because of our distortion, but they don't see themselves that way. Uh, the Buddha was very uh, careful not to let himself be described by others. Of course, everyone d- described him in various ways. Uh, you know, They would s- tell him that he was so compassionate or so amazing, so wise, so wonderful. And he wouldn't deny these things because they were true for the person who was speaking them. But he never characterized himself as any of those things because he didn't see himself that way. He didn't see himself as any particular way. Uh, he did describe himself as the one who is thus. <laughs> what are you? Well, I'm the one who's thus. You know, how I am at this moment is who I am. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's pretty good if you're, you know, you need to describe yourself somehow in a world where beings are fettered and needing needing something. You could say, well, I'm, I'm like this. <laughs> um, and that was pretty much what he did. He didn't say a lot about himself. It was us who said things about him. So practically, this means that a free person can look many different ways, which is great. It can have different qualities. And you see this in the suttas when you read about the great disciples of the Buddha, who were arhans, who were themselves completely free, but they weren't all the same. You know, uh, Sariputta was tremendously wise, but you know, um, also quite kind of you know disciplined and, and very logical in how he explained things. Uh, Mahamogalana was also an arhant, um, but had a more complex uh, character and was said to be someone who would teach monks after they had reached stream entry. He was more about, he wanted to teach them letting go of higher fetters, whereas Sariputta was much more skilled at taking raw new beginner monks and getting them to stream entry that had different roles. Ananda was, well, he wasn't an arahant for a lot of the time. He was described in the teachings, but very warm-hearted, a people person, you know. Uh, many of the different arahants had different qualities. Kasapa was very ascetic, lived off in the woods by himself, whereas Sariputta and Mogalana lived with the Sangha and were Sangha leaders. They were much more community kind of people. So as long as there's no greed, hatred, delusion, could be a lot of things. And I don't think we know what our being is going to look like when it lets go of all those distortions. We'll have to wait and see and be surprised. So, 
we have the famous lines from Ajahn Chah about letting go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And this is the path. It's just to let, let go more and more and have more and more of the peace. Anyone can let go, monastic or lay person. Renunciation is for everyone if we choose. If we choose. So I'll wind up there. Yeah, just ask. We're letting go of this topic now. And after three sessions, and ask if you have any questions. Can you repeat that last thing that you said Ajahn Chah said? Yeah, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. Yeah. I was thinking about the aversion to patterns, you know, um, as itself kind of a, a hindrance of fetter. And, um, and, you know, it, it, it feels like there are times when if you're doing something harmful, you have to sort of do a, you know, don't go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think you sort of clarified that by talking about good karma. You know, that it's not something you stop doing, right? You don't stop so doing good karma. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I just, you may stop I just doing wanted to karma, clarify that with yeah. you, you know, that, that um, there is a time to just say, stop harming. Sure, that can come from a lot of different places. It can come from aversion, which might have an immediate good effect of stopping that particular action, but you've strengthened aversion in doing it. But that kind of cutting can also come from wisdom or compassion, uh, neither of which has to do with greed, hatred, or delusion. So if it's coming from that place, from that um, good quality, then you have the benefit of stopping the harming that's happening in that moment and strengthening wisdom or compassion. So that's the way to do it, is to come from the right place. And we can't maybe do that 100%, but we can aim for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I have two things. But I think the first one I just wanted to kind of like name um, that I have seen in my own experience that, um, I don't know, you mentioned how like the liberated self can look a lot of different ways and how that process looks a lot of different ways for everybody. And um, I just know that like people who have like mental illness or who have trauma, that like renunciation and clear seeing often looks different than for people who don't. You know, like I, um, because you just use the example of dishes, which is like, you know, when you're depressed, doing dishes is really hard. And so I just wanted to bring in that like someone could be pretty far on the path and have depression and look at the dishes in the sink and it still is a big deal and that's like fair. Um, so I just wanted to like bring that in because that was something I was thinking about and I feel like it was important to speak to. Um, and then I had a question about, um, I just, yeah, kind of more like through my own lens looking, I'm going to start a new job and I can just like, I know myself and I can just already see the like clinging to like, I want to be perfect and like look the best and like, 
it's going to be new, so it's also going to be like an activating experience, which usually makes it harder for me to like be in my wisdom. Sure. And yeah. so I was just like wondering, because um, I know, and I think it was Gil actually who spoke to the fact that like sometimes it's okay to like cling or grip before we like let go. And I was almost thinking, if I'm clinging this to so like to this so tightly, maybe I need to like cling to something else that's a little bit worse, but I don't know what you, <laughs> because, you know, before I can really let go, but I was wondering what you were thinking. That's great, that. yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course, we need to use supports as we go along the path. We're using, one analogy given is that we're using a raft to cross a river, and, you know, we first have to build the raft out of our good qualities or other understandings, and then we get in the river and we start going across, and it would be a very bad idea to let go of the raft in the middle of the river, that doesn't make sense. And it's also, I think, um, I might have mentioned this in one of the other ones, is that there's a way of um, kind of moving to something that's better than what we were clinging to before, you know? So, um, like we might be telling a story to ourselves that we know is still a story, and, you know, we don't want to necessarily be caught up in our stories, but we're telling a better story than we used to tell. You know, we we used to have a story that was about I'm so bad, and this is a terrible situation, and then we just changed it to, no, this is a learning opportunity, or this is, um, or, you know, that other person is so irritating because they're suffering, which is a good story. So we, you know, we we tell better stories in order to get to the point where we're not, maybe don't need stories in the end, but, you know, so it's step by step. And then maybe to address what you said first, um, maybe what I'll say to that is, we have to be very careful about uh, putting a hierarchy on different kinds of things that are going to be let go of uh, and thinking that we know what order it's going to be in. Like sometimes if we've gone through something and let go of a particular habit and then we see somebody else doing that, we might think, oh, they're not as far along as me because I've already let go of that. That's, by the way, conceit. It's a comparative thought. (laughs) But if you don't see that, I mean, who knows, maybe that thing that the other person has, uh, they've already let go of 17 things that you haven't let go of yet, but they just didn't get that one yet. Or that's going to be the very last thing that they let go of before full awakening. (laughs) And, you know, you just don't know what order these things are going to go in necessarily. And so it's it's good not to worry too much about, you know, if somebody's still working on, you know, something or other that I think I've done some work on. They must not be as far along as me, or re- or the reverse. Um, I'm not as far along because uh, don't don't engage in that that kind of storytelling is really not useful. Actually, it's almost never fruitful. So, yeah, I hope that might help you <laughs> reduce some suffering along the path. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Carol? Yeah. I. I think it's good news when you say that we create most of our suffering because then that means that we we can also eliminate that suffering. Yeah, it could sound really depressing and or even yeah. angering to some people, but in the end it means nobody can stop you. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Nobody can stop you from being free <laughs> eventually. And that's very good news. Yeah, if we didn't have any control over it, that would be terrible. Yeah, it may take a while to <laughs> do the mastery, to get there, but 
Um, we can, we can, because there's that, yeah, connection within us. Okay, well, we're a little over time, so if anyone has anything further, I'll stay a few more minutes, but...